we're in this section of Hebrews where the preacher of Hebrews is helping his audience understand what it means to live by faith. Uh, for us, faith is a word that can bring up all kinds of different connotations. So, uh, for example, and we've talked about this before, but, but one person might hear the word faith and immediately think about um, a, a kind of belief that transcends the boundaries of reason. So, so that person may say something like, just take it on faith even though you don't understand. Uh, so some hear the word faith and it has those kind of beyond reason connotations attached to it. Or some will hear the term and understand it to merely be a synonym for, for holding some kind of religious framework. So uh, we read an article in, in our favorite news outlet and they reference a, a person of faith or, or a faith-based group that's doing this or that. Uh, and in those cases, the faith is kind of a synonym for, for being religiously affiliated or at least somehow spiritual. Um, but, but as we know from our studies in the book of Hebrews, when the preacher here uses the, uses the term faith, he has in mind something that's uh, different than these sorts of categories. And that when the preacher of Hebrews references faith, he's not speaking about uh, maybe taking a, a jump over rationality, or, or he's not referencing just in general to this uh, group who might hold a common belief together in something, whatever it may be. Instead, in Hebrews what we discover is that this call to live by faith, uh, like we have at the end of chapter 10, it's a call that reflects the very specific and precise kind of living that relies upon and ultimately believes in God and His promises which reach their climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the preacher means when he talks about living by faith. Faith is a matter of definitive trust and belief in God and His promises which reach their crescendo, if you like, in Jesus and what He accomplished. And so it's no surprise, based on all that the preachers told us about Jesus for the first ten chapters of the book, it's no surprise that he exhorts his hearers to live by faith in this way. He calls his audience to live a life which says, in effect, I will trust in God and what he's accomplished through his son. And that, and that trust is going to be the controlling paradigm of my life. Whether I'm thinking about the, the persevering present or whether I think about what's coming for me in the future. The fact that God has made good on all his redemptive promises through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that's the controlling framework for how I go about my days. So the preacher has exhorted his, his uh, congregation here to think in those terms. And then, uh, not only does he call his audience to live this life of faith and, and trust, but he then takes this time to work out what a life of faith really looks like. And again, as we know from our studies, the first major way he works out what it looks like to live by faith is this focus we had in chapter 11, where he takes us through these mini biographies of Old Testament saints, and he gives these pictures of what it looks like to live a life trusting in the promises of God. So the preacher has worked out what the nature of a life of faith can be like biographically for his congregation in that section. And then as we get into the first two verses of chapter 12, like we did last week, what we see is that the preacher continues to work out the nature of a life of faith, and this time, he does so not biographically, but metaphorically. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, the preacher gives us this imagery of a life of faith that's depicted in terms of an endurance race that we're called to run. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, he says. And this metaphorical picture of a life of faith what would have been a very critical one for the first audience of Hebrews to understand. Uh, because in various places we know how, as we read through the book of Hebrews, 
this first audience had become somewhat sedentary in their following of Jesus. They'd grown lazy in their pursuit of being faithful to Christ. So this uh, running a race metaphor would have been very fitting for them to consider just in the, in the strenuousness of the imagery that's here. This call to follow Jesus was not a matter of, of sitting on the sidelines, but it's a matter of engaging in, in obedience and living faithfully in the way that uh, Scripture reveals to us. And so for us too, we, we can't discount how important it is just to be able to categorize our life of faith in these kind of marathon terms. This metaphor is very important for us as well, and that's because it helps give us a very realistic view of what it means to follow Jesus and live by faith. Because while following Jesus can certainly be described in terms like, like rest, or following Jesus can be described in terms you know, like peace and comfort, assurance, abiding in Him, there's all these different descriptions we have for, for knowing Jesus in the Bible. Well, following Jesus can be described in those various and, of course, helpful terms. At the same time, if we're really going to have a mature understanding and a proper set of expectations for our Christian lives, following Jesus must also be understood in the athletic category of endurance. It's a run. It's a race. It's not a race to see who comes in first, but it's a race in terms of the, the call to persevere and run well, even through those seasons of fatigue, even through those times where obstacles must be overcome. The Christian life is an endurance race. We're following Jesus. And so, uh, just like for the first hearers of Hebrews, we're encouraged by this in recognizing what it is to be a follower of Christ. This, the, the, the pressure can come to us, and we recognize the marathon nature of following Jesus. The fatigue can set in. There are those hills to climb. There are the unexpected turns in the road that we never otherwise could have seen coming. And we must press on, the preacher's been saying, in our believing, just as the runner would press on in their race, just as the athlete will press through those periods of fatigue in order to finally get to the finish line. And, and so given that metaphor we focused on in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 la last week, um, we, we, we focused there on just how things are put together in those verses. And as we continue to revisit these verses this week, it helps us as we think about things to remind ourselves that the preacher begins not only by telling uh, this, his first audience that there are these cloud of witnesses who bear witness to the fact that this life of faith is possible. So we're surrounded by all those witnesses back in chapter 11 who say, look, you, you can run. Look at my life. I had my ups and downs. My goodness, Moses is there in his weakness. Sarah is there in her struggle. All of these, the ups and downs are there, but you can persevere in the faith. The Lord will bring you along. So not only are we surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, witnessing to the fact that you can run this race of faith, but the preacher also goes on in chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, to give us the, the how-to in terms of what it looks like to run. It's not just that we're called to run, but he, he gives us what we need to know to run well. And there are two really big how-tos in verses 1 and 2, which we talked about last time. Uh, but just as a refresher, you see there that the first one is, is there when the preacher says that to run well, we need to be able to lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So just like a well-prepared runner uh, wouldn't, wouldn't run with a whole bunch of extra gear that would weigh them down, so too in the Christian life, those things that can unnecessarily weigh us down, those things need to be removed from our life, which is just a helpful truth to remember, uh, that, that, that uh, in terms of a, a vital need we have as, as we follow Jesus faithfully, there are some things that are contrary to Jesus, even good things that can start to take too high a position in our hearts. There are those things that need to be 
set down. They need to be put to the side, just like we'd take off a heavy overcoat before we, before we ran the marathon. Those things can be sins that tangle us up, like the preacher says here. Those things can be hindrances. Uh, again, just those general things that can occupy inordinate places in our affection and start to become uh, too, too uh, critical for us in our hearts. The preacher says you've got to lay that stuff aside. Lay aside the hindrances and the sin that tangles us up. And, and in this, we have a first directive for running. This is how we run the race. And we can hear that, and we can know that, but we can still feel so burdened by that if that's all we get. We, we, we hear uh, that these things which weigh us down need to go, and in hearing that, even try to, trying to deal with those elements that can tangle us up spiritually, um, even hearing that these things need to be set aside and put down if we're really going to run well, just in the hearing of that exhortation, we don't necessarily feel light and ready to run when we hear that. Instead, when we hear uh, things like we need to be rid of this sin that's tangling us up, what can happen, at least I'll speak for myself, what can happen is I don't, need, I don't necessarily feel light and ready to run when I hear that, but instead I feel immediately weighed down and spiritually fatigued. It can hit us in that way. If someone were to say to you, and maybe people have, if someone were to say to you, you know, if you're really going to run the Christian life well, well, you've got to get rid of this and this and this. Ready, set, go. How do you feel when that conversation is over? Like, yes, light, I'm ready to go. No. How do we feel? Oh, do I really? Okay, I've, I've got some stuff to handle. I've got, I've got this burden on my back again. So while it's absolutely 100% true that sin and hindrances need to be identified and dealt with in our Christian life, to only hear that kind of get-it-together exhortation, to just hear that, that doesn't leave us feeling light and ready to run on, our, on its own. Instead, if, if, if that's all we hear, it can really leave us with a sense of being worn out before we've even started to run. Just burdened by the whole thing. In fact, maybe this running the race of the Christian life isn't for me after all. My shoulders are so heavy now. And the reason that weight continues to exist like that for us isn't because the exhortation to get rid of the things that are contrary to God or usurping the place of God in our heart. It's not because that's a bad exhortation. That's a proper exhortation that comes to us all across the Scriptures. But the reason that weight continues to exist like that for us, the reason we feel that burden, is because that's only half the truth of what we need if we're really going to run unhindered. Because not only do we need to know what kinds of things to put down or put off, but we also must be absolutely clear about what to pick up, about what to focus our attention on. We need to be crystal clear on what we're to center our righteous attention and affection and focus upon if we're really going to run. It's not just the putting down that's important and the setting aside that's important, but it's the taking up. Where do we focus? What do we look to? And it's exactly that point that we're going to dwell on today in more detail than we had time for last Sunday because what we see in Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 is that the preacher to the Hebrews isn't just telling folks what they need to be done with in order to run the race, but full race preparation comes when they also understand what they need to focus on or to put it more precisely, who they need to focus on. So, so we see here in verse 2, we run the race of the Christian life not only by laying aside hindrances and sins, but we also run the race of the Christian life by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And it's this keeping our eyes on Jesus that causes those things that hinder us in the life of faith to, to die much more effective deaths. They go down easier. We can take them off easier 
Because ultimately, this keeping our eyes on Jesus is what helps leave us light and ready to run because of who he is and what he's done. So, so it's not just for us in the Christian life, this, this get rid of sin thing, get, get rid of that tangly stuff that distracts from a life of faith. It's not just that, although it is that, but it's also look to Jesus. Look at Jesus and what he's done. Look at Jesus and who he is. Which brings us again to what the whole book of Hebrews is all about, isn't it? Quite frankly, it's what the whole Bible is all about. If we're going to live a life of, of gospel faith, that life of faith will always be hindered unless we see Jesus with extraordinary clarity. And so that's what we're going to focus our study on this, this morning in a unique way. This is why we're taking a second pass at these verses in order to indulge ourselves in verse 2 a little bit and be able to see here how the preacher gives this wonderful glimpse of the significance of Jesus and his work. And as we have the reality of who he is in view, especially as it's filled in by how we've seen the preacher... Uh, speak to these angles already throughout the book of Hebrews as we have this person and work of Christ in view, what we discover is that instead of feeling weighed down and burdened by this Christian life that we, in ways we otherwise can, what we, what we discover is we're actually lifted up by the one who's going to carry us all the way to the finish line. And so there's great encouragement for us here, just even this morning, as, as you sit there, as I stand here, that there is nothing we ever need more than to have a clear and focused look at the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's what we need all the time. That's what we need most of all. And so what we're going to do for the remainder of our time is we're going to take verse 2 and we're going to uh, focus our attention just on the description that we're given there of, of Jesus and, and what he's accomplished. So, again, if you've got uh, your text open there in front of you, uh, we'll, we'll start working through this. Uh, the, the first thing that you see in verse 1, or in verse, uh, in verse 2, there we are. Almost started in verse 1 again, but we can't do that anymore. We've got to keep going. Uh, verse 2 is that the preacher tells the, the audience there to keep, his, keep their eyes on Jesus. And then he says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Uh, so, so keep our eyes on Jesus is this first aspect that's there. Again, it's, it's a reorientation of our gaze. And we can just see how important the, the mere focus of our attention is in this passage. Uh, the preacher, you notice, doesn't say, Keep your eye on those sins that can tangle you up. You can actually end up there at times. I'm just focused on these things that are tangling me up. That's what I'm looking at most of the time. Those are the things that are bothering me. Those are the things that are bringing me down. And I find myself just locked in my gaze at those things. The preacher's saying, you need to understand, those are real, those are there, those need to be done. But listen, here's the thing. Where are you looking? Are you spending your time looking at those things all the time? Or are your eyes fixed on the one who's actually who, the one who can bring you along in the way that you need to be brought along? So that's what he's emphasizing here, which is much like what we found in that Robert Murray McShane quote I gave to you last week, where he says, uh, the old Scottish minister, where he says, uh, for every look at oneself, the Christian must take 10 looks at Christ, which is really what's going on here in this passage. For every look at ourselves, we take 10 looks at Christ. We look at ourselves. We see these things that need to be put down, put down, put down, whatever it may be. But then the majority of our attention and affection is focused on this Jesus and what he's done. And so then, as, as the preacher moves on after saying, keep your eyes on Jesus, we see that the primary thing that he gives us, first of all, as we're looking to Christ, is he gives us this truth uh, about the fact that he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So, so this is what we need to have in mind as the, as the writer of the Hebrews is exhorting us to run. What do we need to know about Jesus? Well, we need to be looking at him and we need to meditate on the fact that he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
So what, what does that mean for us? Well, well, we have an initial clue in terms of the meaning here, just in the play on words that's there. It's there in the Greek text. We don't see it in the English uh, there, but, uh, but the preacher's emphasizing something interesting in that the root of the word translated pioneer here is the Greek word for beginning. And then the root of the word translated perfecter is the Greek word for end or point or you know, fi- final, final element. It's a final sort of focus that's there. So, so there, there's this beginning and end element that's in view with these two words that he's put together, the pioneer and the perfecter, the beginning and the end, the, the first and the final is, is what he's implying. And, and then we can zoom in a little closer here on these two words and, and get even more clarity because this word that's translated pioneer, uh, first of all, it's a word that has actually shown up in Hebrews chapter 2 already with regard to Jesus. And it's a word, even as it's used back in chapter 2, uh, to, used to describe one who goes first. So just like our English word pioneer conveys one who goes first. That the pioneer is a person who, who makes the journey before the rest make the journey. And, and in this context, it's this journey of faith that's in view, where, where Jesus is the pioneer of our faith in effect, because he's the one who in his earthly ministry ran the entire course of life, trusting in God perfectly and never failing or floundering on any point along the way. He's gone through it all first and perfectly. As Hebrews 2 makes it clear, he went through the pressures of life as we do, knowing what it is to face temptations and suffering to to the ultimate degree. So, So Jesus ran his earthly life perfectly, never failing once, in terms of his faithfulness to the purposes and will of God the Father. And so he's first. He's the pioneer of the race of faith perfectly run. And that's very important for us to know. Just as the preacher of Hebrews has brought up on more than one occasion, it's important for us to know that Jesus went before us, because in knowing that, we see Jesus as the one who can completely identify with us. That's why this subject is brought up in the book of Hebrews. Because Jesus has gone first, because he's run the race of faith perfectly, he's the one who can identify with us as we run the race of faith and face all the things that we face in our own lives. Jesus is the one who's been through it. So we think about him. Uh, All the things that Jesus went through, knowing knowing things like sorrow and anger with perfect righteousness as he was there uh, before the grave of his friend Lazarus, angry at death, sorrowful because his friend had died. Or we think about Jesus in the full force of temptation that he could stand under. We, we, we're tempted, but we, we give in. We acquiesce to the temptation. So Jesus knew the full force of temptation and that he never gave in. And he knew that full force in contexts that were horrifically pressure-filled. We, we just think about him there on the cross and what he endured, where he's feeling the, the totality of the, of the burden price to pay for our sins, where he feels that judgment distance from God. Quote Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that's a pain represented in Jesus' life like we've never felt, which we just need to be very clear on. That's a pain no one in this life has ever felt or ever will feel. At worst, the pain of the judgment of God will be rendered to those who refuse to trust in Christ. It will be there for those for their own sins. There's alone. For Christ, though, what did he do? He shouldered the massive sins paying their penalty, and he could have quit in in terms of his context there on the cross. In fact, that was the temptation that he was being called to. Why don't you call somebody to uh, to, to come help you and get you down from there, you miracle worker? 
You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? Why don't you come down from that painful, humiliating place and show us how strong you are by doing that? Jesus could have done that. But of course, we know uh, that though he could have called heaven's armies of angels to rescue him, when that temptation was present, he ran the race of faith facing the deepest dregs of temptation, completely righteous. So, so we just think about all that Jesus faced as he went through things in, his, in, in the totality of his faithfulness. And as we recognize that in our own life, as we encounter sorrows, uh, physical pain in this life, the anger that events in this life can stir up, the deep temptations to, to reject the difficult will of God at times, Jesus knows about those things. And as he knows about those things, we can look to him in our own running of this race, knowing that we look to the one who understands. He can identify with the pain. He, he knows pain at a cosmic level that has never and will never be otherwise known. He's the one who's gone before us in this life of faith with absolute and perfect righteous perseverance. He knows, he's run, and he's won, he's finished. So we can find ourselves at extremely low points in our lives of faith. We can be very honest about the fact that fatigue sets in on the gospel course. And those low points can come for a variety of reasons. But in those low points, we never curl up saying, I'm all alone in this. Nobody can know what it's like to go through these things I'm going through. There's no point in going on. I'm so isolated and there's none who can help. We never reach that point so low. Because we know that even at the lowest point we have, we always have the one who's able to identify with us in the pain. This is what Jesus says to us. He comes to us and he says, I know that pain and I know the pain hurts. He comes to us in the context of temptation and he says, I know the full force of temptation. I know temptations pull as strong. He says, I know grief and I hate death too. And I know that weeping seems like it's going to never end. I know these things. I know these things. I know these things. But I've run the race. I've finished. And because of what I've accomplished, I offer to you the mercy you need in timely ways to persevere yourself. So to run the race of faith, it's not just a matter of, of pitching the sins that tangle us up. To run the race of faith is also to fix our eyes on Christ, the pioneer of our faith. He went first, so here we come. Here we go. He's the pioneer of our faith. And, and not just that, but he's also the perfecter of our faith, as the text says here. So he's not just the one who's, who's gone before us and completed the race faithfully, which means he can identify with us in our struggles of perseverance. But Jesus is also the perfecter of faith. Or to, or to use another word that captures the meaning here, Jesus is the completer of our faith. He, he's the one who's done what's necessary to secure the promises of God for us. So, so it's not just that Jesus has gone first in terms of persevering through the life of faith, but he's guaranteed the finish line promise of eternal rest for all who trust in him. And so, so we just think about this. Because of Jesus' perfect life, because He's offered that perfect life up to pay for the sins of those who will trust in Him, because He's sufficiently dealt with our debt before God in that way, because He's completed that, all the promises of redemption are ours through Jesus. He's the perfecter. He's the completer. The completeness of our faith is found in Jesus and what He's accomplished. Which, which just reminds us, something we've seen through Hebrews a number of times, but it just reminds us there's nowhere else we can go for the completion of access to the redemptive promises of God but through Jesus. 
Nowhere else to find it. There's nowhere else to, be, to, to go to be reconciled to the God who made us but through Jesus. There's nowhere else to go uh, to find the daily strength to continue in this life of faith but to go to Jesus. There's nowhere else to go to find assurance of life after death instead of judgment after death but through Jesus. There's nowhere else to go to find the renewing mercies we need on a daily basis but through Jesus who makes a way for God's promises to be yes and amen in our life. He's the one who does all that. He completes it. Which is why as we speak about things like eternity and, and spiritual realities that exist beyond death, that's why we affirm what others might say to a certain degree in terms of the fact that, that all paths lead to God. All humanity will stand before the creator God of the cosmos on the final day. All roads in that sense do lead to God, but only the way of Christ leads to God safely and savingly. To be apart from Christ is to be apart from the source who brings faith in God and His promises to a perfect, redemptive culmination. Which not only speaks to the exclusivity of Jesus, in terms of there being no other way to be saved except through Him. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but through Jesus. It not only speaks to the exclusivity of Jesus as the completer of our faith, but Jesus being this perfecter, it also speaks to the relief that's there for us in our Christian life as we run. This is another one of those truths that helps to relieve the burden from our shoulders as we go in this way of faith. Jesus is the perfecter of, the, of faith. I'm not the perfecter of my faith. You're not the perfecter of your faith. God doesn't say, trust in Jesus and then Jared, you better get it right the whole time because if you foul out, this thing is over for you. You're the perfecter of your faith, after all. God doesn't say, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If you get it wrong, if you stumble on the run seven out of ten times, say, uh, then redemption and reconciliation and future hope of life, if, you, if you're weak and weary and stumble, it's gone for you. He doesn't, God doesn't say to us, pull it together, because if you mess up, if you have a bad Tuesday, if you have a bad year, if you have a, if you have a broken down 20 years, that's it. Heaven's off the table for you. No, you're not the perfecter of your faith. I'm not the perfecter of my faith. We're not the ones who have the ultimate weight of procuring and preserving the promises of God for our lives. That weight rests exclusively and sufficiently upon the shoulders of the perfecter Jesus. He's the completer. Not you, not me. And praise be to God for that. So, so in terms of setting aside things that would otherwise hinder us, the sins that would tangle us up. This helps us know where to be looking. We keep our eyes on Jesus. I don't keep watching my feet. I, I, as you know, I attempt to run a few times a week. It's more of a stumble than a run. And I run on a trail that's kind of rocky. And I've fallen down a couple of times so much so that every time I leave the house, Julia just says, don't fall. And she thinks that's funny. But, but what happens is you start looking at your feet enough because you're worried about what's coming next and pretty soon you've lost sight of the trail entirely and, and down, down I go. Right? And that's what he's helping us with here. We don't want to lose sight of the trail. We don't want to have, have our eyes so focused on these things that can trip us up that we've lost sight of the one who's out there in front leading us along in the way. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. He went first and he can identify with us. And Jesus is not just the identifier, but he's the finisher. He's the one who brings God's promises of saving grace to those who are His. He, he brings that to completion. Which, which is why we have such a wonderful benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews, which we've been reading every week as we've studied it. We'll read it again today, but I want to just remind you of what it is. The benediction of, of, at the end of Hebrews, we, we run this race, the preacher says there, equipped by the God of peace, 
with everything good to do his will, now listen to this part, as he works in us, what is pleasing in his sight, how? Through Jesus Christ. God works in our hearts through the person and work of Jesus in order to bring us along in the way that he calls us to go. Which, which can help us have a moment of, of honest reflection because we can ask ourselves the question, uh, where is our trust exactly? It's very easy to, to find ourselves gauging our, our future hope or even our fatigued performance in the life of faith. We can be gauging that just by the struggles that we're having. Maybe I'm not really cut out for this Christian life or maybe I am, but my goodness, certainly I'm the, I'm the, I'm the C team or whatever it might be. No, no, no. Our, our hope, the fact that we're going on, the fact that we persevere to the end, what we have to see is centered on the fact uh, that we're, we're gauging that hope on the person and work of Christ who keeps us. He gives us the strength we need. He gives us the endurance we need. We depend upon Him as we run. It doesn't mean the, the output isn't there. It doesn't mean that the struggle isn't real, but it does mean that the strength that's supplied is not strength that's sourced in our own hearts. And so we have that to focus our attention on. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the one who went first. He's the one who's going to bring us to completion in this race of faith. He's the pioneer. He's the perfecter. And then if you look at the next part of the verse, we also see that he's the supreme example of running the race of faith. So not just that he's the, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, but he's the supreme example. And you see that there where we have Jesus' accomplishments and his own continued persevering uh, put on display there. And, and we read that when we, when we see how he says, Jesus endured the cross. Now, now there's a sense in which the truth of Jesus uh, enduring the cross is so familiar to us, we can almost just pass it over because it's such a given. We know about that. Jesus endured the cross. Uh, Seneca, the, the first century Roman philosopher, he described death by crucifixion as dying limb by limb. And, let, and the letting out of life drop by drop. That's quite the description there. And, and that's, the, uh, that's the tame end of Seneca's description of crucifixion. But crucifixion, though it can be almost common to us just because we reference the cross of Christ with regularity, crucifixion, as we know, it was a horrific death physically. But, but even above that, enduring the cross, as we think about that, even above the horrific physicality of the suffering that's represented there, the cross of Christ wasn't just torturous physically, but as we said earlier, it reflected uh, uh, the intensity of cosmic pain as Jesus was bearing the punishment for our sin. He bore up under the weight of God's just judgment for our sin, which was laid on him as he suffered in cosmic judgment there at the cross. He endured the cross. He went the marathon distance, paying for our transgression according to the justice and saving purposes of God. He went all the way until he breathed his last saying, it is finished, and he completed that work. And he didn't just endure the cross full stop. But you see here, he endured the cross, verse 2 says, despising the shame. Despising the shame. In Roman culture, we know the cross wasn't just an, an exceedingly painful way to die, but we also know it was the most shameful way to die. So much so that a Roman citizen, no matter, no matter how bad their crime, uh, they, they would never be subjected to crucifixion just because of the honor of their citizenship. Never mind what a crummy person they were, what a horrible thing they'd done. Just the honor of their Roman citizenship kept them from being crucified as a form of penalty because it was so shameful. It was so humiliating. It was, it was human degradation, indignity in the worst of forms. And with 
given current company. We won't go into details, but you know about that. It was shame. And Jesus endured that cross, not from a posture of, of victimization, you know, de- decrying the bloody embarrassment of the event, but he endured that cross despising the shame. And that's such an interesting statement to make here. He despised the shame. Jesus despised the disgrace that humanity attributed to his death on the cross. We put it another way. Humanity counted Jesus' death on the cross shameful. Jesus counted counting it as shameful as shameful. In, in, in other words, for him, the shame of the cross was not ultimately shame. It was ultimately the way to salvation glory. Which explains why we're told what we're told there in verse 2 in the fact that Jesus did all this. Why did he do all this? Well, he did all this for the joy that was set before him. Jesus didn't endure the cross embittered by the public scorning. In fact, in the midst of the humiliation, he prayed for those who crucified him uh, to be forgiven. Jesus didn't endure the cross so as to be recorded merely as as, as a moral teacher martyred on a Roman gibbet. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He did this because, because he knew, and this is, this is a question that interpreters will wrestle with. What was the joy set before him? How do we know what Jesus was really thinking about? What was this joy? And, and, and the most reasonable conclusion seems to be, it's the joy of everything that's been talked about in Hebrews so far. The fact that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The fact that Jesus is the one who is going to do what is necessary to bring all these sons and daughters to glory. Jesus is going to be the one who brings God's salvation purposes to this climactic reality where all those who come to him in, in faith have this new and living way open Uh, before them. Jesus was bringing the redemption plan of God to perfect completion, this grand joy of salvation. So the cross was not a death in shame for him. The cross was the path path to salvation, victory, and glory. And then it's just so intense here just to have this insight into Jesus' frame of mind as he endured. Because on the cross, what the world counted as shameful, bloody embarrassment, you know, what are they saying? What a shameful way for that teacher to die. He'd done so many amazing things. What, an, what, a, what a shameful way for him to go. What an embarrassing end to quite a remarkable life. But what the world counted as shameful, Jesus counted as gloriously triumphant because of this joy set before him. The joy of being the completer, the perfecter, the one who brings all of God's salvation promises to a climax. And even as we think about this, this, this condition that Jesus operated in as he, as he endured, could, could there be a more selfless kind of joy just in what's reflected there? This draws us out, if nothing else, in great love for our Savior. Because, because when we do run, when we run this race of endurance, we're not running merely from the perspective of having to be done with certain things, but we're running in the way of the one who has loved us to this extent. This is what was going through Jesus' mind as he turned his face toward Jerusalem, knowing he was going to be crucified there, like Luke tells us in his gospel. As Jesus was going toward the cross, what was going through his mind is the joy of the totality of God's purposes there, set before him that he was persevering in the salvation work he was was, uh, called to do. And he counted what the world said uh, would be shameful. He counted that as glorious as he persevered in that way. Which draws us out not only in love for Christ, that he would have this mindset of of, of glorious redemption there as he was going all the way, but it also draws us out in perseverance ourselves. 
the, the first hearers of Hebrews, this, they would have needed this exemplary mindset that was there for Jesus during his perseverance, for the joy set before us, not for the public shame that seems to be all around us. The, the first hearers of Hebrews, they were shrouded in public shame. Friends who'd had stuff uh, confiscated, as we know, we read about this in Hebrews chapter 10. They were actually uh, enduring ridicule from people just on a general basis, it seems like, from chapter 10. The, the first audience of Hebrews knew what it was to be shamed because they followed Jesus. They knew that. We know that. We know what it is to have somebody say, you, you don't, it's nice you're religious, but you don't, you don't really like follow Jesus though, right? You don't really think he died for sins on the cross and rose again, the resurrection business. Did you, you really believe that the Bible is the word of God and that it's something you're, you're called to obey and it tells us everything that's actually true? You really believe that? We, we, we know what that can be like to live in context where that kind of shame can be very present. And what the preacher to the Hebrews is saying is that shame is despisable in the sense that we are not despising the people. Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him. But we despise the public shame that can come in following Jesus, recognizing that ultimately there's a future joy that, be, that, that lies beyond all of this. And whatever might be reflected in public opinion at the time bears nothing on the fact that I'm going forward in this way that ultimately is going to lead me to life because this is what God has promised for me in his word. This is what Jesus has purchased for me on the cross. And so I'm going forward for the joy that's set before me. Isn't that what all these people have been doing in Hebrews chapter 11? Why are they persevering like they're persevering? We talked about it time and time again. They're obeying God in the present. Why? Because the present is easy. Because they've made a whole bunch of friends in the present. Because the present is just a pleasant place to be for these people. No, they're sawn in two for crying out loud. Why are they persevering in the present? Because of what God has promised in the future. The joy set before them of redemption. And just as Jesus persevered for the joy that's set before him, we're called to persevere for the joy that's set before us. Which is punctuated in a, in a wonderful way here, just at the end of this verse, when we're told there uh, that, that, that not only is Jesus doing this for the joy that's set before him, but at the end of what Jesus accomplished, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sitting down means your work is done. Sitting down means your work is done. Sitting down at the right hand of God means you're the one God has appointed to the highest place of honor. He's completed the work. He's in the highest position. He's Lord of all. What do we understand from that? Well, we understand that this Jesus, who's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, this Jesus, who's the supreme example of, of true and true perseverance as he ran the race, this Jesus has also been installed as the high master of the cosmos. So much so that like what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, there will come a day whether people have willingly yielded to him for salvation or continue to revile him uh, because of his position. There will come a day when every knee will bow and confess the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. This is what's there in the end. This is what we ultimately look forward to. To, to quote Narnia, he's the king, I tell you. He's, he's the one we're looking for, forward to. And so, and so when we put all this together, we, we have this wonderful compulsion to run and to run light. Because those things that hinder me, I'm able to put off as I look at the glories of Jesus. And, and, and we speak about these glories to each other in order to stimulate our own lives of faith. We read about them as we study the scriptures. We hear about them as we sing the songs on the Lord's Day morning. As we remember what Jesus did in communion. These are the kinds of things that compel us forward ultimately to run lightly. Because we are not our burden bearers. Jesus was. We are not the finishers of our faith. Jesus is. 
He's the one who does what is necessary to accomplish all of that. And in case we ever thought, maybe that's not the case, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, just look up and see who the Lord of the universe really is. Could there be anybody else? He's the one seated at the right hand of God Almighty. And so we're compelled by this. We're relieved by this. With our Bibles open, we're reminded of these things. And as we meditate on aspects of Jesus and His work, our load is lightened and we run. Which is why in just a moment we're going to sing that song that, that Jesus must have in all things the first place. But because in Him is everything, first to last. So, so we can just end a section like this with, with, with a question for our meditation. Uh, even this afternoon as we're thinking about these things, we can just ask ourselves, where are, you, where are you looking? Where am I looking? Where are my eyes fixed as I seek to follow Jesus? Things around which distract? Or am I looking to the truths I know about my Savior, which ultimately compel me to run and draw me on in this pilgrimage? Certainly the glories of Christ are compelling for us. And so what do we do? But we run. We run, as the preacher says, run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together. So, Father, we're thankful for your truth. We ask that it would be uh, transformative in our hearts, that it would be encouraging to our hearts, that we could see Christ for who he is and all his power and perfection and be drawn along and follow him faithfully. We ask this uh, for his honor and in his name. Amen.